0: Well, good morning again. I'm Andrew, and I'm an assistant pastor here at InTown. This is your first time with us. We are so glad you're here on this special morning where we get to hear from John Cox one more final time. A few things I want to share, and then I'll pray for us. Um, I'm holding a lot of handouts. If you didn't get a handout, you can ask me for one. There are also handouts in the back on our sort of S-table. And uh, John has uh, kindly brought his uh, book on parenting called Setting Parents Free. Isn't that a great title? And you can purchase that. And there are a few copies left also in the table right out there. And so you have all this morning if you want to grab that as well. Uh, Quite a few people have asked me about the audio from this weekend. And we will post that on the website. Uh, After a few days, uh, we will have that up. So you're welcome to access that. Let me pray for our time, and then John will come up and lead us and uh, do a lot of Q&A as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for waking us up, giving us food and coffee and more from your hand, and giving us uh, people in this room that uh, we know and who love us. We thank you for John, that you've uh, brought him here to be with us. We ask that you'd speak through him this morning. Open our hearts, Lord, to what you have to say. Change us and prepare us for worship, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thanks. Um, how many of you here were not here for the
1: conference? Okay. And you call yourself a Christian. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> Okay, one of the things that I do lots of times when I go to churches is sort of a church-wide Sunday school and sort of open forum Q&A. And uh, that's what this is, of course. But this isn't limited to um, the marriage conference. If you have parenting questions or growth questions, um, we can sort of just free-for-all. And as you all have seen, if I don't know the answer, I'll ask you to help me figure out an answer and we, the body of Christ, can come up with something. So uh, I want this to just sort of be that level of freedom. Um, just to get us started, uh, I wanted to pick up on a question I got on my Google Voice text. Um, an individual asked me, how do you manage the shame of having gone through a divorce and not bring that into your new relationship? And what, what, what sort of stood out to me about that was the question of shame. And I realized that we hadn't talked that much about it and I thought that may, it might be a good way for us to get started. Um, <clears throat> shame, in a sense, is a technical term for psychologists, at least. Uh, and it needs to be because we need to make some distinctions. Um, should we feel bad about our sin? Or should we feel bad about the ways in which we fall short of what we wish we did? Should we feel bad about... Um, the ways in which I'm incomplete, or mistakes I've made, or the ways I've hurt people. Yes, I believe we should. However, I think biblically speaking, that that feeling bad should be what the Bible calls godly sorrow, the sorrow that leadeth unto repentance. In other words, once we ate of the of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, doing bad. Stop being something that would break my heart before God or make me be humble or make me seek seek help. Once Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's the first feeling they started to feel? Shame. So they hide with the fig leaves. They start judging one another. And all of a sudden, this new thing happens. I mean, if you mess up like that, what you should do is you should run to God and go, you're not going to believe what we did. We ate of the one tree that you told us not to eat. And not only do they not do that, but along comes this, the 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 one who could save them, seeking them, saying my favorite words in Scripture, where are you? And they hide from him. Why? Because of shame. Now, what is shame? Shame says... Um, You're not just bad because of your sin or because of your mistake. You're despicable. How dare you? No one else would do something that bad. Um, Guilt says, I am culpable, and I feel bad for my choices. Shame says, you are bad because of your choices. Shame has this edge of of self-destruction to it. And it has this edge of uniqueness to it. No one else would be this bad. Now, um, in in rare cases, like with a jerky, unrepentant, constantly hurtful person, uh, shame is something that can be used to sort of get their attention. But otherwise, shame is not good for us. One reason it's not good for us is because it's not true. The truth is you are fallen and I am fallen and we are fallen and we are all a mess, and that thing that shame says that you are uniquely despicable and should be humiliated for it, that's not true. You're as broken and screwed up as me and the rest of us. And one of the things I wanted to put as a a nonverbal underlining for my conferences, I hope you've experienced this whole weekend hearing me, the expert, be somebody who screws up all the time in his marriage. I want to normalize that for our community and, and, and for us to say, do we want to be that way? No, it breaks my heart. But shame says, how dare you do something so horrible? So Christ comes, and he says, yes, your sin is grave. Yes, your guilt is paramount. But I am going to take that on, and I am going to redeem it, and I am going to bear the shame of it. Christ undoes the shame from the garden. I love that passage in Hebrews where it says, Christ uh, enduring the cross, despising the shame. And I don't know what everything about that particular word means, but I had this image of him just going, you know what, shame? Fine. You want to shame somebody? Shame me. You don't get them. They're mine. You want to shame somebody? I despise you. Shame me. Have me nailed up in a way that exposes me as somebody even God doesn't want to show how much I want them. He takes our shame and, and, and grinds it into powder, which leaves us the freedom to just be screwed up, hurtful, broken people and be sad about it. And that humility, that sadness, is what drives us to repentance. Where does shame drive us? Into hiding, into isolation. And you guys are good students of John Cox by now. What's going to happen to our growth when we're in isolation? Zero, okay? So shame is actually going to undermine growth because it's going to keep me from ever coming into community. Now, one of the ways we combat it is what we've been doing. Y'all know Brene Brown? She has a great phrase about shame. She says the two words that heal shame are me too. And what we're saying is Are we bad? Are we sinful? Yes. And we should repent and be brokenhearted for it. Should you be ashamed and humiliated for it? No. Christ took that shame, and now we are in a community together where we can be broken together. Um, There's a section in the book about how to help your kids with shame in this same kind of context. But I wanted to begin with that because I think it's such an important distinction. Um, Godly sorrow and that healthy guilt and brokenheartedness versus that shame that makes me despicable and therefore alone. Christ took that. Question? Over here.
2: Um, I had a comment and a question. We've talked about how hard marriage is, and we're in a culture that's very anti-marriage and really buys into marriage is hard. In fact, it's too hard. Don't do it, you know, or don't do it till you're going to have kids. Don't, you know, and... I, having gotten married in my 30s, want to say being single is hard. And and if we as married people minimize that or act like, oh, I remember the good old days of being single, then you must have gotten married about 20. Because if you got (laughs) married older, you know that being single is hard. Mm -hmm. And it's lonely and... In my hardest days, marriage has been easier for me than being single. And so, um, you know, I wanted to piggyback on what Jason said about the church being the bride for the single. And um, and how can we do that better, but also just to, to say, how can we as a church, when we talk about the tough things about marriage, not make it sound so bad hmm. that you know, we, we worry about the people who think marriage is going to solve all their problems. But I'm also worried about this whole message in our culture that marriage is too hard, too bad, don't do it. Interesting. So how do we address what's the good thing about marriage and and to so that singles aren't paralyzed, afraid of commitment because ugh, it's just going to be too hard, hmm. that we don't want them to think that marriage is going to solve other problems, but we don't want them to think it's just terrible, because it's really not. Yes. Now, I mean, my husband's not here right now. He'll be in here. <laughs> so I can say, he's, he's pretty great. But, you know, it's not that it's not work. But, you know, I hated being single. So...
1: I feel like you've addressed that issue better than I could. Do you have a question?
2: Yeah, my question is how do we, as how, what's the positive about marriage? What do you say? You're asking me
1: what is positive about marriage.
2: <laughs> yeah, what are the, we've talked about what's hard. Tell what's
1: positive. Yeah, right. Well, one of the reasons I focus more on what's hard is because that's where people struggle. Um, uh, just if we had more time, I would love to pontificate more on the richness of it. Um, but it's sort of like um, you have a broken leg. I don't want to ask you about the rest of your limbs. Let's look at the broken leg. That's one of the reasons I talk about the negative part. Now, another reason I talk about the negative part is because, um, strategically speaking, growth-wise, therapeutically, if you will, um, there really are ways that God has given us and created for us to actually make the hard work. In other words, um, pain is an interesting uh, concept in the sense that Uh, There is good pain and there is bad pain. Um, There's the pain of sitting around and overeating and over-drinking until I feel sick the next day. Now I've created pain that is completely my fault. There is the pain of, of restraining myself from eating what I want and drinking too much. And there's a sorrow in that healthy pain that helps me get better. All right. So if you put two fallen, broken people in a relationship... They are going to create friction and difficulty. And in some ways someone has said uh, that's one of the good things about marriage. If I, can, if I can play on words a little bit with your question, um, the fact that marriage is hard is actually one of the reasons it's important. Someone has called marriage a crucible. And we talked about how... Um, you know, one of the one of the things that's a problem of the human race is that we want love more than anything in the world and we're afraid of love more than anything in the world. And one of the things that marriage does is fling our vulnerability out into the open to where our spouse sees it all the time and I'm not sure I always want her to. Um, marriage has this funny ability to be a magnifying glass for my pathology. <laughs> in other words, the weak parts of me, the vulnerable parts of me, we will tend to marry someone who's going to pull out exactly the part of me that needs to grow the most, okay? In fact, I've told singles before, the the biggest personal cost to not being married is that you miss out on one of God's most powerful tools for sanctification. (laughs) Um, So I want to reframe the notion of hard, too, Um, I do think that a lot of people in our culture don't want hard, regardless. I would love to speak to that issue, but I don't know how to speak to it at a cultural level. But this notion that because something is hard, you should avoid it, that's one issue. The good things, what's good about marriage? I think that it is natural and whole to find completion like that. I think um, when you live that closely with someone and you injure one another and repair it, I'm blown away at the level of better intimacy it creates. The hard actually creates something positive. Um, I think that the uh, learning of a different way of looking at the universe, one of the things that I've been struck by in marriage is that um, my way of looking at the universe wasn't the only one. You know? um, and it's like, okay, she sees it completely different and I need to stretch. I don't know, I could go on. But what I want to say is the thing that is hard, uh, rather than counterbalancing it with the fact that there's plenty that is good, I also want to counterbalance it with the fact that there's good pain and good hard, and people who are willing to grow in that one place in their marriage that hurts the most are actually working in their Christ-likeness in an incredibly powerful way. It's good hard, like working out. It's good hard, like dentist drill versus toothache, Okay. Good hard is what I've wanted to put y'all through this weekend. Push you hard and make you think in a way that makes you grow. And I think marriage done well with some good tools actually is that good kind of redemptive workout hard in the in the sense that makes us grow.
0: That's a gift.
2: We preempted John with this question before the, the session. Uh, Steve and I have a heard what you said about conflict versus fighting, conflict and fighting. We heard it a little differently. Um, Did you get in a fight about it? <laughs> is that fair? I'm sorry. So,
1: Did you get in a fight about it?
2: Yeah, and we had a big fight <laughs> this morning, but we still made it. That is it. not what
1: he said. I'm sick so, of you.
2: Steve, Steve was remembering that you said the lovey-dovey couple came into your office and said, we're just so in love, we never fight. And you said, you need to have a good fight. Uh-huh. What I remember is... Conflict is good, fighting is bad. Could you just elaborate a little more?
1: Yeah, good. That's actually a good point. Um, When I was talking to the guy, I was using sloppy language. He needed to go have a fight. I was picking at him. Um, To be technical, I make this distinction just because I think it's helpful um, for a couple to have. I do want to see conflict and fighting as separate things. Conflict being, like I said, making sense of what it means to not be the same person. In other words, um, I really want to do this. Oh, my gosh, I really don't. Oh, that's really difficult because this is really important to me. I understand it is, and this is really important to me. Okay. So how do we work this out? Because, you see, this conflict, I'm not having fun, but I'm not being ugly. I'm not going, oh, my gosh, for crying out loud. Does everything have to be your way? And then they go, my way? You think it has to be my? And now the conflict's turned into a fight. Once you feel that shift to the caveman brain where anger is coming, you're saying that junk you always wanted to say, conflict is that potentially very sweet process of I want to make room for you and I want to make room for me, and we lock arms and we work this out together. Fight is when I start to hurt you and be angry and, and blame you because you're not being what I want you to be. Good distinction. Thanks for helping me go back over it. Behind you, Andrew.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate yes. it this weekend. I've been thinking about the sorrow yeah. aspect that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking back to a time in our marriage where we were just bombarded with storms.
1: Thank you.
2: They
3: were all external, but it caused us to withdraw
1: from one another.
3: I'd like to know how to not do that next time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're breaking my heart. Um, thank it you.
3: Actually, it's because my child is throwing a fit downstairs. So, like, this is emotional, but then I also have another emotional experience. This right. part, so. just
1: um, I would ask you more questions, but I'm more merciful than that. Uh, <laughs> let me just go with that. Um, you had kind of a uh, snowstorm of pain, lots of different issues, and you withdrew from one another. Um, will you answer for her? Was the um, withdrawal, did it have any edge of hostility to it, or did y'all just kind of melt apart? Okay, good. Now, that's not, um, that's not necessarily something weird, unusual, or problematic. Let me talk just a little bit about that. Um, One of the reasons that love, one of the reasons we can be scared of love and scared of closeness is because love melts our defenses. In other words, if, 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 I, if I'm in pain and I kind of need to lock down a little bit, which is healthy in some ways, kind of a survival technique. Um, let, me, let me riff on that just a second. Sometimes when we have a real tragedy or too much, the comparison I tell my clients is that it's like somebody backed into your kitchen with a whole dump truck full of peaches. Hey, that's a good Georgia connection point, right? All right, yeah. Um, And all of a sudden, your whole kitchen's full of peaches. Now you have a problem. There's no way you can eat all these peaches. You'll die, all right? So what our defense is and our defense mechanisms and our self-protection stuff in our, in our inner world does is it cans those peaches and puts them in the larder as fast as it can, okay? So now the kitchen floor is clean. There's cans of peaches all stuffed up in there. So, okay, I'm surviving. Now, what grieving is then is the process of reaching up there one at a time and eating a can of peaches, and, and I do that with people who I love, and I do that with my body of Christ. I do that with my spouse. But God made us in such a way, mercifully, that if we're working right inside, that we will throw up defenses, protect ourselves, can the peaches, and have the ability to take them down one at a time. That's a beautiful ability. People who don't have that ability have, you know, the, quote, nervous breakdown. They flood out, and they can't manage all the peaches. Now having a larder full of peaches is great because you have some defenses up that are protecting you from all of that pain. Now, let's go back to what I was just saying about love. If I get really connected to you and really close and we start talking about our hearts and what we're going through, all of a sudden, those defenses start to melt more and the level of pain I'm feeling gets worse, okay? One of the challenges of being a therapist is you have to work to connect with somebody enough to access their pain, but not so much that it overwhelms them. I always say outpatient therapy is like fixing an airplane while it's flying. you got to, (laughs) like, crawl out on the wing, you know, and, like, (laughs) fix and then crawl back in and go, okay, go back to work. All right? So um, when that is threatened, that is very dangerous. So a lot of times what couples do is they pull apart a little bit in the midst of all of that because if I get really too close to you in this, you and I are, there's going to be like jars of peaches blowing up in the pantry. All right. And that's too scary. So, what I would recommend that you do is um, a great way to be close when there is a problem. It's paradoxical. Is to talk about how we can't be close because there's a problem. Okay. In other words, it's like, um, Um, I'm hurting too much and you're hurting too much so we're sort of in our separate corners but we're both hurting and we have each other's heart and it's like, you know, I love you but I can't go any further now. And he's like, me neither, babe. And there's this sweet connection that says this is the best we're doing. There's something so, uh, there's something so intimate about this is the best we're doing. A couple, or even friends or church people saying I want to be able to love you better but this is the best I can do. That's intimate, right? So instead of the intimacy being, whoa, we can totally be, you know, there's a different kind of intimacy that is the intimacy of my inability. And that's been in the background of a lot of what we've talked about this weekend is the intimacy of inability is such a great thing. It's such an intimate thing. I was telling the session Thursday night, you know, as they're considering how to minister to y'all better and shepherding and all that, You know, they're people like us. They're going, oh, my gosh, how do I know how to love these people well? And I want to tell them, you know, the ways in which you don't know how to love us well are as deeply connecting to our hearts as your mastery. Okay, so same thing in relationship. Yeah, thank you for your vulnerability so much.
3: I guess I get it. (laughs) Uh, We like your style. Um, We were wondering if you could recommend any therapists in Atlanta that are kind of along your style. There's so many different kinds of psychologists. Yeah. So we were just wondering if you could recommend some.
1: Uh, This guy knows a lot. You know what? Yeah. Um, There's a couple who went to Rosemead in California where I went, Uh, Bill and Beverly Bird. Um, I like them a lot. Bird, Bird, like. Yeah. Right. Um they're hard to get into, whatever, but uh when, when I can get people to see them, they have a they have a similar education to me. Um uh, but, uh, a therapist who's like me. Simple as that. The answer was nobody. Uh, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> <Woo>! Yes, <laughs> that's good. All right.
4: Thanks. Well, hey, John. Um, I've been uh, really struck by. Th- comments that several have made very, very well. Uh, Dana, a, a few minutes ago, Jason, last night, um, where they were probing sort of the intersection between, you know, marriage, between two people, and um, whether it's our relationship with God personally or our role in a church, in our church being like a marriage. And, <clears throat> um, and you just made, made a comment about um, you know, things that the session is interested in probing with respect to, to you know, how to sort of model that and whatnot. But what, what strikes me is that in, in all of these relationships, there are you know, vows. You know, we have membership vows. We have ordination vows. We have marriage vows. Um, and that in none of them are they one-sided. Theres um, and, and you know the, the baptisms there, there's always the question for the other participant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, congregation, do you promise to help raise this child and, and and so forth and it's it's very it's helpful for me to have it put in that that kind of language because in a, in, a, in a marriage situation, just to, to stop and think what's the parallel to that in my relationship with God hmm. or in in a church situation to really understand the dynamics of what's going on what's the parallel of that in my marriage and they, they just inform each other so it makes me think about in respect to the the the, the, the sessions initiative, you know back to the church side, how to better apply that principle of, you know, thinking about, okay, how would this play out in a marriage to how should it be playing out in the church? And one is obviously, you know, we need to feel safe with each other. Some people have said things here in this body the last couple of days that they wouldn't say if they didn't feel safe mm-hmm. among the people here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's, there's also, and we talked about behaviors that can violate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'm sort of thinking through sort of what are the what are the parallels in terms of life as a church, not just being willing to get up and reveal things in front of a group of people, but in terms of how we behave as a church with each other um, um, in issues with respect to you know governance and the responsibility, say in ordination and vows. Person taking the vows is saying one thing, <clears throat> but what is it that the congregation is saying, like in a marriage, to the person taking the ordination vows? In terms of what that relationship is supposed to be like, how do we, through our behaviors, violate that? Uh, what if, can be the things that would make that makes that unsafe as a, as a body? Um, trying to be a church, like a couple, trying to be a married couple. Does that make sense?
1: Um, Not quite yet. Okay. Um, What makes what unsafe?
4: Um, Sort of, well, I'm going to go to the marriage, staying in the marriage, Mm -hmm. working through difficulties. Mm -hmm. The church, in a difficult time, how does it act to move through that, Mm. certainly not to avoid it, and go in different directions.
1: Hmm. I don't know if I have that big of an answer, Clell. I don't know if I know how to answer that well. I could speak more to the life of an individual in the church, and and that might bring it down to the grassest roots in the sense of rather than talking in terms institutionally of how the church can do that. I think that's that's something I haven't thought enough about.
4: Individually is important.
1: Yeah, right. I didn't mean to. Obsolete. Can I twist yeah. your question a little bit? Sure. Good. Y'all have learned by now I don't know all the answers to all your questions. So. But it occurred to me one day, why does the guy who's the answer guy in the Q&A always have to know the answers? Who made that rule up? Okay. Oh, yeah, um, anybody
4: can answer this. You know, in regard
1: to the community, uh, in regard to connection, we've talked a lot about that in a global sort of sense and in an institutional sort of sense. We want to build community, whatever. But you know what that looks like to me at the bottom line? It looks like reflecting on what does my relationship with my friend look like. In other words, you have friends, right? Um, I want you to be looking for and becoming um, friends who can take it a level deeper. In other words... um, Say you have a friend who you trust somewhat and you uh, hang out together. Um, we can talk about small groups or shepherding or, or programs, but I want you to be thinking with people, what would it look like or be like to ask this person, I, I want to I start bringing some more of my junk to you and you bring in more of your junk to me. Are you interested in that? You sort of, it's, I think it's good to have a conversation about it. Like my uh, business associate, Jim, he and I had a conversation a long time ago. It's sort of like, hey, we eat lunch a lot, but I also run across junk in my life that I'm struggling with or that bugs me or that I'm afraid of. I would love to be able to bring that to you. And he said, really, same here. And we would say, okay, I need this Monday, man. You know, this one's on me. I'm on the couch. And learning to sort of shift a relationship, in our culture we don't think much about this, shift a relationship to one that has a good friendship that's safe becomes a developmental relationship, a good friendship in which I can tell you when I'm afraid or angry or when you, and I can tell you I got in a fight with Norma and you can go, "Uh, dude, to be honest with you, I think that one's kind of on you, you know? I mean, you kind of came in the house ranting, so I'm not surprised she blew you off. And I'm like, really? I mean, that is, that is at the molecular level where the church is happening. Um, and rather than, hey, y'all, let's build a program where we can be more connected, I want you to be thinking about an individual in your life. Where do I have friends, and how can I take those things to the next level? And even say to that friend, I want you to teach me how to be a good friend to you and, you know, somebody wrote me in the text, like, so, so what does that look like? How many people do we need to have in this community thing in our lives? One. If you have one other person who knows what's going on in your heart, it's going to be life-giving for you. It's going to be a resource for you to pull through hard things. It's going to be a resource for you to maintain your vows in terms of saying, I commit to the to the worship and work of the church and you know, all the things that we vow about the church, we're going to sustain that as we do that together. So I want, to, I want to bring all of our community building thing down to the smallest little level, and that is somebody outside of your marriage who you can bring your heart to, and they bring theirs. Um, by the way, I've said a couple of times, I've alluded to this, that, that those um, unresolved eyes that we talked about, the unresolved software, the abilities that we have, um, that, or don't have, that marriage is not the best place to try to get those met. Let me talk just a minute about why that is. Remember what I said about developmental relationships? Developmental relationships are where we get new software, new abilities in our heart that we don't have. I'm not able to really be connected and intimate and share my heart. How do I develop that ability? I'm not able to be me and set boundaries and have good stewardship. Where do I develop that ability? I feel shame about things and the ways I fail. How do I grow and heal there? Well, the only place you can do that is in what I've told you I call a developmental relationship. Now, developmental relationships are relationships in which someone is bigger and someone is smaller, like parent-child, therapist-client, pastor parishioner group and member, um, teacher-student. And when good friends say, hey, let's be a good resource to one another. You take turns being the big one. Like I will say to Jim, I need your help. And I will ask him what he thinks and listen to him. He gives to me. Now, it is very difficult for a marriage to be a developmental relationship because by definition, a marriage is an adult-adult mutual sharing relationship. Okay? Marriage is supposed to be the fruit of my completion, not the resource for it. And to the degree that my marriage becomes a place, let's say I'm insecure and I don't feel like that I am really uh, good at my job. Um, Now, I'm going to be constantly needing my wife to affirm me. Now, let's say what she needed was she had a real needy, over-suffocating mom. And what she needs is somebody who's strong and powerful and to give her some freedom. So I'm needing her to affirm me all the time, she's needing somebody to give her freedom all the time, and we're doing the two ticks and no dog thing, right? So one of the things that I see marriages do that really corrupts them is, I'm bringing my unresolved little guy needs into my marriage, and my wife can't meet those. I need to have Body of Christ people do that. So um, I live in a family growing up in which nobody really connects intimately, so I'm gonna get married, and at last, this is going to be my second chance. This is going to be a place I get all of my needs met. And she's too busy or tired to connect. I'm going to panic. And I'm going to get angry because you're supposed to, we're supposed to connect. And I'm bringing those little kid needs into the marriage. And you're not going to be able to get them fixed there. You need to get them fixed outside in a developmental relationship. And then you all both bring that fruit back to marriage. Now, marriage can be a resource to that part of us, the unresolved parts of us. The way I frame it to people is you can go to your spouse with your little kid struggling, broken parts second. After you've gone to somebody else, you can come to your spouse and go, Yeah, I really am hurting a lot about so and so, so and so and I've talked to my body of Christ people about it. And so I want to bring it to you because I want you to love me in it and be with me in it. Not to fix it or to make it better or for you to change so I don't have to deal with this. That makes sense? This is a very complex, difficult issue, but it's one of the most important things I could tell you, and it's the number one mistake I see everybody making in our marriages, is we try to go to our marriage to finally get that unresolved need I've always had met, and your spouse can't do that. So we hate them, and we think we married the wrong person. But what's really going on is we both have the little square, the little part of us, living inside of that four people in every marriage thing, and we need to be taking good stewardship of that part. As I see people grow in that part, as it becomes a crucible that points out the part of me that's missing, then you see marriages really thrive because they're not two little kids inside. I saw a hand back here. Is it relevant to this question? Yeah, yeah it's good. About, it's about good, because I could use help on Klaus. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I could use help on his question. I, uh, I didn't answer it well. Well, about
3: friendship, you were,
1: you were talking about friendship. Oh, yeah, finding that one person. Right. One. So...
3: I have a friend, she's really good at going deep with people, and what ends up happening is a lot of people come to her, and they pour out their hearts, and she's good at connecting with them on that level, and so much so that she was flooded, and she had to go seek therapy for it. So, my first question is, for those who are better at doing that, um, and have... have an easier time making that connection um, to set boundaries and protect yourself but also to help teach others how do you go about doing that how do you teach others to sort of connect that way too so that's my first question and then as it dovetails into your question about how you should have that person outside of marriage yes, um, how you can share with that person and not cause your partner, your marriage, your spouse, to feel um, threatened by that Or triangulated. Right. You're not going to believe what she did last night. Why did you share that with them first and not with me? You know, sort of thing. Oh, okay. You know, kind of a, um, why are you working that out with them? Aren't we? I'm I'm not, Paul's not. (laughs) I mean, this has come up a few times because I am very lucky. My sister-in-law has been... She was my best friend before she married my brother, and I feel like I have it, and I don't, (laughs) and so I feel like I, I feel, I feel sad because um, sometimes I don't have the emotional energy to share with other people at the level I share with her, so I think there's a guilt on my end, and then my friend's telling me how she has, you know, she's feeling flooded by so many people. You know, I feel like well, maybe I'm not doing enough. So there's also that feeling of guilt. So sorry, I threw like three things at you. So, <laughs> uh, I'll take so,
1: a sh- I'll take a shot at them. Okay. Your first question involves the kind of person who um, is often emotionally insightful and sort of emotionally gifted, um, and they end up gravitating into kind of a fixer position in their relationships.
3: Maybe I would say people are just attracted to them because they. Um, Right, but the
1: difference between a resource who people are attracted to and a fixer is that resources who people are attracted to don't burn out. Yeah, okay. In other words, I'm a fixer, but if I'm too tired to fix you, I'm going to go, you know, I got nothing, okay? In other words, whenever we are engaged in someone else's need, what becomes paramount on the table for the giver is the issue of stewardship. In other words, I've got, you know three loaves of bread inside and i've got people who want four loaves of bread now if i give four loaves of bread i'm in a negative position now and i'm going to really suffer for it so why would someone give four loaves of bread when they didn't have it a lot of times people who are givers need to reflect on what is my need to be sort of such a giver like um what is it in me that feels guilty or bad if i say no i don't have any more to give you You know, that issue is being someone who is a resource to another person does ask this question of how much do I have to give and how do I take care of myself? Um, You know, we were saying at the meeting Thursday night that there needs to be a a, a big person given to a little person but you know what? There needs to be a bigger person giving to the big person and a bigger person giving to that person. And those of us who are in a position of giving, we should be in therapy or we should be in relationships that are giving to us, okay? Because our own stewardship of what we need has got to be part of that, okay? I mean, think about it. Even the good Samaritan put the guy in a hotel, Okay, he didn't say, "How oh, honey, look at this guy I found on the road." No, it's like he put him in the eight days, and then he continued on his journey. But so there was an issue of stewardship there of how he took care of the guy. Um, so being a fixer uh, puts you in immediately a, a position of vigilance. You need to be careful. Okay, now um, the next one is about question?
3: marriage and how when you're in that relationship with someone and you're sharing with oh, someone yeah. and how the, your spouse... Um
1: All right. Well, you know, that's a good point too. Thank you. Y'all are helping sort of clarify. I'm making an answer and y'all are helping me sort of shave the rough edges off. This is good. Um, because as I'm thinking about this friend who I want to develop a better relationship with, I think it'd be really smart and cool to talk to my spouse about it and say, hey, Bob is somebody I really trust and I'd like to start bringing my junk to him. Now, my wife would say good because uh, <laughs> I like Bob because he knows me and he knows you and he's, you're not going to be able to, like, trick him because you're going to go over there and say, no, I'm such a jerk last night. He's going to go, yeah, I'll tell you why she's a jerk because you're a jerk, you know, and he'll, okay? What we don't mean in this sense of having resources to help us grow outside the relationship is triangulating where it's like instead of coming to my spouse with my problem, I go to someone else and go, you're not going to believe. Okay. If, if, if all your friends say to you is, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that to you, then get new friends. Okay. You need friends who will like tell you the truth. All right. Now back to that spouse. I would hope that a couple, um, would, you know, leave here and go, Hey babe, this sounds good. Let's both start looking for places in our life that can be resources. And, uh, so you're on the same team. So she's not going to be threatened. But if she is threatened, why aren't you talking to me? That is something little and vulnerable in her. And I would, if I was a kind husband, in just a, another universe, um, <laughs> <laughs> just hypothetically if I was kind, um, I would say, babe, I know that really pushes your buttons, and I care about that. And I, 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 I feel like it is very important and life-giving. What do you need to know from me? What do you need to have answered? Because there's something inside of you that's already answering a question. If he talks to somebody else, then maybe I'm not enough. Um, if he talks to somebody else, maybe he doesn't love me. And I, when somebody has a challenge to me, oh, my gosh, um, you look so angry. Or, oh, my gosh, you obviously don't care about me. Or, oh, my gosh, you want to talk to somebody instead of me. Instead of going, no, I don't, no, I don't, a good way to engage a marriage issue that begins with a, um, an assumption of guilt is to say, ooh, ouch, yuck, I don't want you to feel that. Would you like to ask me some questions? Now, they, you are now available to help them, but they got to have a little skin in the game and go, okay, um, do you still love me if you're going to go talk to other people? And they're actually working to solve their own problem. Otherwise, a needy person like that is ultimately going to drive the other spouse crazy, going, no, babe, okay, well, I won't see him if it makes you upset, and her fragility is running the relationship, Okay.
3: Well, yes. Yeah, so I guess my other question that didn't, that still needs to be answered is for that friend that I have, that she is so good at connecting with people on a deep level. There is a, um, a relational um, wisdom she has. How do people with that relational wisdom share that um, with others so that they might turn around and do that with others? So that you're not, you're not just having pockets in the body of Christ that are relating well together, and others aren't. Does that make right. sense?
1: Yeah, but it's such a big question that I'm sorry. I, they told me stop a little before 10:30. I don't think I can get into it. Let me do one more um, easy question. <laughs> y'all get that? And then, we'll, or do we want to stop now? All right, we gotta stop now. Uh, he says he says, got it. And I'm relatively good at submission. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I look forward to worshiping with y'all.